Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you're a fan of the Marvel superhero movies like me, that's probably how you best know Thor and Loki. But long before Stan Lee and Jack Kirby ever incorporated them into the comics, they were actual Norse gods with a rich mythology all their own. By the way, in the original Norse mythology, they weren't actually brothers. They also never fought the Hulk, but that's pretty much a given. One tale that does come straight out of the early folklore was a story that was told in the 13th century Icelandic anthology, The Prose Edda. In that particular story, Thor, Loki, and another traveling companion named Thialfi arrived at the enormous palace of the giant king Utgard. Now, Utgard had a competitive streak that was longer than he was tall. So the first thing he did after his guests arrived was to challenge them each to a series of contests. The Alfie chose a test of athletics, and he ended up losing a foot race to a giant named Hugi, which actually means thought in the ancient Norse language. And nobody can ever outrace a thought. The mighty Thor ended up losing three different events, including a drinking contest in which he was challenged to guzzle the contents of a horn anchored in the sea. The poor guy didn't even have Natalie Portman to comfort him after losing. That only left Loki. Now, Loki thought he was clever. He was the trickster god, after all. So he declared his own competition, in which he bet that he could eat faster than anyone. It was a challenge that he thought he couldn't lose. He was the quickest of the gods, as well as the most clever. But Utgard had a trick up his own sleeve. The king accepted the challenge and set Loki against the fire giant Logi. Being a fire giant... Logi had the most voracious appetite of all the elementals. The trickster and the fire giant sat at the opposite ends of a grand table, with a wooden plate full of meat in the middle. At the appointed time, Utgard told them to start chowing down. The two of them tore into the pile of meat with a speed that was difficult to measure with the naked eye. Everything was a blur as they crammed greasy morsel after greasy morsel into their mouths. And when finally Utgard called time, Loki looked up triumphantly, certain that he had won. All the meat was gone, after all. Only Loki hadn't won. Loki the fire giant had managed to best him by not only eating his weight in meat, but also all the bones and even the wooden plate, too. Thus was born the earliest recorded competitive eating contest. After the 13th century, there is little evidence of many other such eating competitions occurring. For several centuries at least, food was a difficult commodity to come by, and most common people wouldn't dare waste it on such frivolous games. The only people who could afford to indulge in such mega-feasts were the uber-rich, and a few other individuals I'll tell you about soon. 
It wouldn't be until the mid-19th century, during the Industrial Revolution, when things would start to change. With better farming methods and better means of storage, food suddenly became a lot more plentiful. That meant people finally had the chance to really play with their food. The earliest such food-eating competitions were probably the pie-eating contests that began appearing at county fairs around the country. Then in 1916, a Coney Island hot dog stand called Nathan's Famous began hosting its own hot dog eating contests as a publicity stunt. One legend goes that the first such contest was between four immigrants who each wanted to show who was the most patriotic of all by cramming themselves full of the American frankfurter. Within a couple years, the competitive eating contest really caught on in the public's imagination, and it spread out to all sorts of other foods and bizarre challenges. This included a 1919 spaghetti-eating contest between a New York Yankee and an ostrich. Yeah, that's right. It's amazing what people did for entertainment before they had Netflix. But although we can watch these tributes to gluttony with a mixture of awe and revulsion, the modern competitive eating champions had nothing on some of the most infamous and most disgusting eaters in history. I'm Nate Hale, and I think I'll just order the salad. And this is The Conspirators. If we are to look throughout history at some of the most bizarre eaters that have ever lived, you have to first separate out the reasons why some people ate what they ate. There is an actual medical condition called pica that causes some people to crave inedible objects. The term pica actually comes from the Latin word for magpie, and is so named because a magpie is a bird who will eat pretty much anything. It's still unknown what makes some people want to eat things that can't or shouldn't be eaten. Some doctors over the years have tied the eating of unusual things to an iron deficiency. But that doesn't really explain the full variety of strange things some people crave. Others claim it's a purely psychological condition. And when you hear the list of things people have eaten, it's easy to see why. There have been documented cases throughout history of people who have eaten human ashes, feces, unlit cigarettes, urinal cakes, pencil erasers, twigs, coffee grounds, couch cushions, plastics rocks, and dirt, among other things. Of course, over the centuries, tastes have changed considerably, and so has our knowledge about food and nutrition. Both the ancient Greeks and Romans wrote about the medicinal qualities of eating dirt. The Greek philosopher Hippocrates wrote about the many benefits a pregnant mother's unborn child would gain by her consuming dirt and charcoal. Some ancient Romans thought that consuming clay could give you a milky complexion. The prolific Roman author Pliny the Elder wrote extensively about the medicinal qualities of red clay in particular, which could be taken either orally or rectally. The ancient Egyptians also left behind recipes that contained dirt and clay as key ingredients. Many Native American tribes were also known to add dirt to some dishes as a spice to mask the bitter flavor. Some medieval reports describe showmen who would consume all manners of strange objects for an audience like handfuls of stones, spiders, snakes, and other poisonous things. A 17th century English laborer named Nicholas Wood earned the name the Great Eater of Kent by consuming 60 eggs, a massive portion of mutton, three pies, and a black pudding all in one sitting. At other times he was known to have consumed seven dozen rabbits at one meal and an entire feast cooked for eight people at another. Although his capacity to pack in food was impressive, even he had his limits. On one occasion, during a visit with a man named Sir William Sedley, 
Nicholas Wood actually drove himself into a temporary but serious food coma by eating too much. On another occasion, a man named John Dale bet Wood two shillings that he could conquer the man's appetite. Dale fed him twelve loaves of bread that he soaked in a strong ale, and Wood got so drunk that he passed out. Dale won the bet. Despite failing on both occasions, Wood's reputation as the man who could eat anything made him famous in Kent and the surrounding countryside. The English poet John Taylor sought Kent out and offered to become his manager, if he'd just take his voracious appetite with him to London, where he could perform for a crowd. Taylor's plan would have Wood performing daily feats of gluttony at the city's Bear Gardens, which at the time was primarily used to host animal fights. Taylor had big dreams of bringing out wheelbarrows full of tripe, or perhaps dreaming even bigger, an entire sheep or calf for Wood to consume. But this dream never came to pass. By then, Wood was getting up in years, and by then he'd lost all but one of his teeth. Wood ultimately declined Taylor's offer, and he admitted to the man that he didn't think he could perform to expectations anymore. Besides Nicholas Wood, there have been several other individuals who turned gluttony into a spectator sport. A man from Dorset named Charles Tile once ate 133 eggs, as well as a large helping of bread and bacon in one hour. A French showman named M. Dufour once entertained a packed house in Paris by devouring a whole meal that consisted of snakes cooked in hot oil, dishes of tortoise, bat, rat, mole, and even an entire roast owl. For dessert, he topped it off with a bowl full of toads sprinkled with flies, crickets, spiders, and caterpillars. To wash it all down, he drank a flaming glass of brandy. Audience members could actually see the flames light up his throat. But as gross and disturbing as some of these showmen might have been, there were two men in particular whose ability to eat took things well past the shocking and into the downright horrific. Charles Delmarie was born in Poland in 1778. Although he didn't seem to be outwardly unhealthy in any way, by the time he was 13, he began to develop an insatiable appetite for food. Throughout his life, Domery claimed that his father and his eight brothers all had large appetites, but nothing compared to his own. He joined the Prussian army at a young age, but he proved to have such a stupendous appetite that he actually deserted and joined the French just to get more rations. But even the French weren't able to provide enough food to satisfy Domery, so he began to look elsewhere starting with stray cats. Domery reportedly ate 174 cats in a single year. People noted that he ate everything raw. On top of the cats, he was known to eat rats, dogs, tallow candles, animal entrails, and more than five pounds of grass each day. Once when he was stationed on board a French frigate, the crew attempted to dispose of the severed leg of a crewmate who had his limbs severed by a cannon blast. Domery tried to eat the leg, and likely would have finished it off if the other crew members hadn't snatched it from him and tossed it overboard. The British Army captured the frigate in February of 1799. Dalmarie and the other crew members were all sent to a Liverpool prison, where his captors quickly learned of the man's insatiable appetite. British physicians were fascinated, and they set out to conduct experiments on him to see how much the man could consume. A lot, as it turns out. They fed him 10 pounds of raw beef, 2 pounds of tallow candles, several bottles of wine, and a 4-pound cow's udder. Domery ate every bit of it, and afterwards he informed them he could have eaten more if they'd given it to him. Strangely, the one thing Domery didn't like to eat were his veggies. He supposedly disliked most vegetables and would turn them down if offered. 
all except for potatoes and turnips, which he would consume raw by the bushelful. While in the hospital, it was observed that Delmarie would generally go to bed around 8 p.m. Typically, he would lie there for one to two hours, sweating profusely before finally falling asleep. And like clockwork, he would wake back up at 1 a.m. each morning, feeling ravenous, no matter what he had consumed earlier that evening. At that time, he either ate any available food, or if no food was given to him, he'd smoke tobacco for an hour until he could fall back asleep. He'd typically sleep for two or three more hours before he'd wake, drenched in sweat, and ready to eat again. It's not known what happened to Domery later in life. The last known sighting of him was when he was still being held in the British prison, when he was faced with constant taunts by his fellow inmates. One story says that when he couldn't take it anymore, he snatched up a knife and cut two large gashes in his arm and used the blood to write on the walls the words, Viva la République. His story became famous throughout England, catching the attention of, among others, Charles Dickens, who wrote about the tragedy of the man's life, being forced to perform for jeering crowds. One 19th century article about the man attempted to explain his outrageous appetite as being the result of bulimia, or a ravenous fever as they called it. Another possibility for his insatiable hunger is a condition called polyphagia. Besides Charles Domery, there was one other known person who possibly suffered from the same condition, who might be the most disturbing case of all. His name was Terere, although it's not known whether this was his birth name or a nickname. If it was a nickname, some people have suggested it was taken from the French phrase bonbon Terere, which means to explode. It's believed that Terere was born in rural France, near Lyon, in 1772. He had a huge appetite, even as a child, and it wasn't long before he could eat his own weight in food in a single day. It didn't take long for him to quite literally eat himself out of house and home. When his parents decided they couldn't care for him anymore, they forced him to leave home and fend for himself. It's believed that he spent some years roaming the countryside in the company of roving bands of thieves and prostitutes. With them he learned to beg and steal food, he eventually found work with a group of traveling performers. With them, he drew big crowds by eating things like corks, stones, sticks, and live animals. According to stories, he was particularly fond of snake meat. In 1788, he moved to Paris and found work as a street performer. He performed for marveling crowds as he consumed anything and everything people brought him. Things went wrong on one occasion, and he suffered a severe intestinal obstruction that landed him in the Hotel du Hospital, where he was treated with powerful laxatives. He made a full recovery, and he offered to pay for the doctor's services by demonstrating his act and eating the surgeon's watch and chain. The surgeon declined, adding that if Terrer ate his watch, he'd be forced to cut him open and fish it back out again. Despite his ravenous appetite, Terrer was incredibly skinny. At the age of 17, he weighed only 100 pounds. No matter how much he ate, he never seemed to gain weight. His skin hung so loosely he could wrap the fold of skin from his abdomen all the way around his waist. He was described as having soft, fair hair and an abnormally wide mouth that helped him cram in the food. His teeth were heavily stained from everything he'd eaten. Descriptions say his body was hot to the touch and he sweated constantly. As you can imagine, he smelled too. The stench that came off his skin could bring tears to your eyes and would get noticeably worse after he'd eaten. He belched often, and he suffered from constant diarrhea that people described as being fetid beyond all conception. Some physicians have suggested that he might also have suffered hyperthyroidism, the symptoms of which include profuse sweating, heat intolerance, 
rapid weight loss, and thinning hair. Early on in his life, Terrier joined the French Revolutionary Army. But like Charles Domery, army rations weren't enough to satisfy his appetite. He was known to do odd tasks for his fellow soldiers in exchange for their scraps, or being allowed to scavenge in the dung heap for a bit. He was eventually admitted to a military hospital where he was provided quadruple rations, but even this wasn't enough. He was often caught scavenging in the garbage, or for the scraps on other patients' plates. The nurses caught him on more than one occasion sneaking into the apothecary's room to eat all the poultices. The doctors were, of course, fascinated by Terrer. It's hard to say what they felt they were learning from it, but they began testing his capacity for food on a regular basis. On one occasion, they allowed him to consume a meal that was made for 15 laborers, including two huge meat pies, plates of salt and grease, and four gallons of milk. He immediately fell asleep after he was done. The doctors were fascinated by how taut and distended Terrer's belly became after the meal. On another occasion, Terrer was presented with a live cat that he proceeded to tear apart with his bare teeth and consume. The only part he didn't eat were the cat's bones. After he ate the cat, the hospital staff began bringing him all sorts of other animals, including live snakes, lizards, rats, a live eel, and puppies. Although ostensibly he was being held in the hospital for treatment of his condition, after a certain point it begins to sound more like he was just doing another show for an audience once again. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. After several months of being studied, one of Terrier's doctors got an idea how they could put his appetite into service by making him a military courier. They put a note inside a wooden box, then had Terrer eat the box. Two days later, the box was retrieved from his excrement. Terrer was summoned before a gathering of commanders of the Army of the Rhine to demonstrate his abilities. As a reward, they offered him a wheelbarrow containing 30 pounds of raw bull livers and lungs, which he ate right in front of everyone. Although his commanders were convinced of his potential as a spy, there were some who were concerned that he might be too mentally unstable for the task. For his first major assignment, he was ordered to carry a message to a French colonel imprisoned by the Prussians near Neustadt. Although he was told the documents he consumed were of great military importance, in fact, Terrer's superior had just written a simple note asking the colonel he was to bring it to to confirm that he'd received the message and to reply with any useful information he had about Prussian troop movements. Terrer crossed Prussian lines disguised as a German peasant. Unfortunately, he was unable to speak German, and soon attracted the attention of the locals who turned him into Prussian authorities. The Prussian soldiers strip-searched Terrer, but found nothing suspicious on him. Despite being whipped by the soldiers, at first Terrer refused to betray his mission. 
But after 24 hours of captivity, Torer was starving, and he finally broke down and explained what he'd been doing. They chained him to a latrine, where after another 30 hours went by, he passed the secret message. The Prussians were furious when they realized they'd been duped. They eventually let Torer go after they decided he was useless to them. Following his capture and release, Torer returned to the hospital and begged the doctors to help cure his appetite. The doctors tried a bunch of different treatments, including laudanum, wine vinegar, and tobacco pills, all of which proved unsuccessful. They then tried to see if they could overfeed him to the point where he wouldn't want to eat anymore. So they fed him dozens of soft-boiled eggs, but it had no effect. He began sneaking out of the hospital to scavenge for offal outside of butcher shops. He'd sometimes fight stray dogs in the streets for scraps of dead animals. On several occasions, hospital staff caught him drinking the blood from some of the patients undergoing bloodletting. When they caught him in the hospital mortuary attempting to eat a cadaver, some of the doctors began pushing to have him transferred to a lunatic asylum. But Terrer's personal physician, Dr. Percy, fought to keep him in the military hospital under his care. But then, after some time, a 14-month-old child disappeared from the hospital. Everyone immediately suspected Terrer. Finally, the hospital staff said enough was enough, and he was forced to leave the hospital and put out on the street. Four years later, in 1798, a Monsieur Tessier of Versailles reached out to Dr. Percy to notify him that a former patient of his was with him and he was dying. It was Terrer, and he was bedridden and too weak to stand. He told Dr. Percy that he'd eaten a golden fork two years earlier, and he believed it was lodged in his intestines somewhere and causing his current condition. He wanted Dr. Percy to remove it somehow, but Dr. Percy recognized that Terrer was suffering from advanced stage tuberculosis. He died only a month later. Although it's unknown for sure how old he was, the best estimates say he was about 26 years old when he died. Terrer's corpse rotted quickly, at first, the hospital surgeons refused to dissect the body. But Monsieur Tessier wanted to know what made Terrer the way he was. He was also curious whether there was any truth to the story about the gold fork being lodged inside him. The autopsy on Terrer's body revealed that when his jaws were opened, the surgeons could see all the way down his bodily canal into his stomach. The smell was horrendous when they cut him open. His entire body was filled with pus-filled lesions. His liver and gallbladder were massive and his stomach was even larger and covered with ulcers that spread out through much of his abdominal cavity. Incidentally, they never found the fork. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to give a shout-out to more of my Patreon supporters. Special thanks need to go out to Shannon, Bianca, and Jean for all becoming patrons. Just for signing up, they're going to receive all sorts of goodies based on their levels of support. Patreon supporters can get all sorts of things like personalized thank you notes from me, conspirator stickers, fridge magnets, t-shirts, and access to my exclusive Patreon-only mini-episodes. If you're interested in helping out the show, I'll put the URL in the show notes. And if you can't sign up for Patreon, that's cool too. I'm so happy that each and every one of you have taken the time to listen to my little show. I'm coming up on the one-year anniversary of the show, and in that time it has grown more than I could ever imagine. Last time I checked, I had over 350,000 downloads, and that's all because of listeners like you. Thanks so much for all your support and your reviews on iTunes. I do have a minor correction to give on an earlier story I did. 
You may have heard my episode on Typhoid Mary I put out a few weeks ago. Well, one of my astute listeners, Keenan, pointed out that I said the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness originated with the creation of the New York Department of Sanitation. That's not exactly correct. In fact, the Department of Sanitation did use the phrase as a slogan for the newly created department. But in fact, the phrase itself dates back at least 100 years earlier to 1778, when John Wesley used it in a sermon. And he was just using a variation on a phrase that had been around for even longer. Thanks to Keenan for catching that. I try to be as accurate as possible in my research, but I really appreciate it when my fans catch things that need correcting. If you ever have any information you want to add about any of the stories I've covered, or if you just want to drop me a line, there are lots of ways to do it. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and my Facebook page. I also do a lot of hanging out in the podcast we listen to Facebook group. You can also send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Every review I get helps boost the show in their algorithms and helps spread the word. We're always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again.